0: Well, good morning again. It is great to be together this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. While you're turning there, uh, I'd like to say welcome to those that are joining us online, those that are joining us in Wills Point. We're glad to be sending to you this morning. And um, as you're turning there, uh, we're going to be in several different places after that, but kind of the foundation of where we're at, as we looked at last week, We're going to return to that place uh, this morning. Uh, But before we get there, I want to share with you um, a little bit about geometry. Who loves geometry in here? Math majors? Some of of us do, right? I know two of us in here 100% do. Uh, But in in geometry, there is a figure that is known as a ray. It's known as a ray, if you're familiar with, with what a ray is. It's interesting that it's called a figure. Uh, but a ray is essentially it's 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 a line that has one endpoint but then the other side of that is unbounded it just it just runs off into infinity it has this spot where it begins and then it just goes right? and it just it 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 it's a measurement of direction you know where an angle would be but Randy Alcorn he wrote this book it's called the treasure principle and in this book, he lays out several principles uh, as it pertains to money and finances and just where our treasure is. But his principle number four uh, is called that I should live for the dot, not the line. And he takes this idea of a ray, you know, an and, and object that has an endpoint and the other side just continues on in infinity. He calls that endpoint a dot and then, of course, you have the line. But he points out is that we have this struggle within us is that too often what we do is we live for the dot instead of the line. And he equates the dot to be our time on earth and the line that goes off in infinity to be our eternity. And it's a wonderful illustration for us to think through what our time on earth looks like and what eternity would be like as it relates to that one spot. You know, we, we just recently came off of the uh, the series of the hope of heaven and we talked a good deal about that line about what eternity may look like but too often we get so consumed with the dot and when we focus on the dot so much it begins to skew our view of the line so much so that we don't even recognize the line to be there but nonetheless if you understand geometry if a point exists and from that point something goes out it will continue on as a ray does so one way or another there is a dot and there is a line the question that we should come to is which one are we going to live for and that should shape the way we move through this idea of money matters specifically to where our treasure is Jesus says where your treasure is there your heart will be also so with that in mind Think through that as we go through this. The dot versus the line. What are we living for versus what we should be living for? And how we maneuver through the dot in order to get to the line. But 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul says that it is through the craving of the dot, so to speak, that many of us, we wander away from the faith, being so consumed with the here and now, And it says that they've pierced themselves with many pangs. And I think we can relate. When we focus on the dot, life is difficult. Especially right now when we talk about money matters and this idea of money and finances and all that. We're in an inflationary cycle. Goods uh, have increased as far as the cost of them. It's interesting that uh, a little over a year ago, my wife and I decided to sell our house, and and we move in with my in-laws. They graciously took us in for a time. But as we were living there and we're thinking through what the next step is going to be, you know, we bought a house, and then we were thinking through whether or not my wife should continue to work. We decided to, for her to not work. She quits her job, but the budget that we had then, in that day, as far as how we're going to make this work so she could stay home and mother our girls, that budget is not what it was then, today. So yes, within the dot, things can be difficult, but that should not change our view of the line. So Paul encourages us, we'll go back to our main verse from last week, Ephesians 4, verse 28, he gives us this this exhortation, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So we're going to continue to come back here, but he says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor. Last week we talked about labor, and we talked about work, that we were created for work, that we should be willing to do hard work. But this morning I want to focus not so much on hard work, but I want us to look into honest work and what that is. But I think before we can get to honest work, I want to talk about the thief for a moment. In order to talk about the thief, let's back up. And I want to grab some context of where we're at and what Paul is saying here. So read with me in Ephesians 4. We're going to back up to verse 17. And Paul is laying out now uh, the Christian life, how we should be living, how believers should be living out the values that we would say we have or the doctrine that we've learned. And he says in verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. He says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, but to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Notice the tense. Put off your old self according to the former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed then in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, So he's he's saying, hey, we should not walk as the Gentiles did. There is a lifestyle in which we all existed in. And he said, you should put that off and you should put on the new self. And this new self, note this, is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Then he says, therefore, because of this new life, therefore, having put away falsehood, he says, let each one of you And then he lays out a series of exhortations. In light of that change, if we put off the old and we put on the new, what he is saying here is we put away that falsehood and then each one of us should begin to live according to that truth. And in the middle of that list of exhortations, we have verse 28, where he says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him do honest work with his own hands. And he gives a reason so that we would have something to share to those that are in need. Some of the questions you may be thinking is why jump back and read that? If we're talking about money matters and we're talking about doing honest work and why are we jumping back and grabbing that context? But I want us to see what our condition was outside of Christ. Outside of what God has done for us. We were far from him, we were darkened, we were ignorant, we were callous, we were greedy, we were corrupt, we were deceitful. That is what the old self was. But then, when we read this, the exhortation to a thief, we may be tempted to say, Well, I'm not a thief, so this part doesn't apply to me. I'm not labeled a thief, I've never stole anything. So we're tempted to say, hey, this is going to be great for somebody, but it's not going to be great for me. But the reason I jump back is to say that every one of us share in this in some way. I believe this applies to every one of us, and here's why. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. The Greek word for thief there is klepto. But it's interesting that, that, that how the ESV translates this is the word klepto in the Greek is a verb. We read thief to be a noun. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Right, so thief is a noun, but in the Greek, the verbiage is that it's klepto. It's a verb, but it means to steal. A literal reading of this would say, he who steals no longer must steal. So we can do away with the label of a thief we can do away with our our heart's response to say well I'm not a thief and put it simply in what Paul says is the one who steals don't let him it's not steal anymore but then the question becomes I may not feel as if I'm a thief but the question becomes have we ever stolen a thing so it's not to the exclusion of everybody it's to the inclusion of everybody because in one way or another we've stolen something and I'm going to unpack that here in just a minute so it means to steal, but more specifically, it means also to pilfer. Pilfer, an interesting word, pilfer. To pilfer something is to appropriate or to take it, but what lies underneath there is that it's taken secretly, secretly and craftily. It's the idea of there's thievery that has gone unnoticed. Right? If if someone goes and they rob a bank, if there's a bank heist of millions of dollars, that's not going to go unnoticed. Now, the thief may go unnoticed when he takes it, but the thievery itself will go unnoticed. What Paul is getting at is he says, don't, don't steal, let the, let the one who steals in a manner that goes unnoticed, and even the thievery itself, the thing stolen, can go unnoticed. He says, don't do those things, because those things exist in the dark, where we once were, darkened, ignorant, callous, greedy, corrupt, and deceitful. Says we put off such falsehood. A great example of this is in Acts chapter 5. I want to read this story together because it gives a very good picture of thievery that may very well have gone unnoticed. But it's an apt illustration for what Paul is getting at. So in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, "...but a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property." And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So you have a man and a wife. It's specific to say that he kept back for himself, but he sold a piece of property. His wife had knowledge of it. doesn't say anyone else had knowledge, but his wife had knowledge of the thing. They kept it back, and they brought only a part of the proceeds, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And then verse 3 says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So you have this man and this woman, this husband and this wife, sell a piece of property and they keep back a portion of it for themselves and they only give a portion to the disciples. But how did Peter know? When I think of thievery that goes unnoticed, the only way this goes unnoticed or it doesn't go or it does go unnoticed apart from the Holy Spirit. I believe Peter's insight is the leading of the Lord to say, why is it that you have lied to God? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The idea for, for Ananias and Sapphira in this sense is they're not lying to the people. They're not lying to Peter. They're lying to the Holy Spirit. They're being deceptive against the Lord who knows everything. And he calls them out. And he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain on your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why, has, why is it that you have contrived this in your heart? contrived why have you thought this up why have you why have you laid this down as a thing to do in the greek literally to contrived it means to lay down they've had this idea and they've laid it before themselves and they've walked in it why have you contrived this in your heart you have not lied to man but to god when ananias heard these words he fell down and breathed his last and it says in great fear came upon all who heard of it naturally so then the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. But it continues on in verse 7. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She has opportunity to be forthcoming, to be honest, to be truthful. Tell me if you sold the Land for so much, and she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down on his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, this may seem to be you read this an extreme consequence. For what we would just label as just dishonesty. Because in our mind, here's the way we would think about this. They own this property. They sold this property. Are they not in their right to keep a portion of the proceeds of that property for themselves? After all, it was their property. On its face, that's the way we would reason through it. Because we've all bought and sold things. We've all had a thing that we've sold and we keep a portion for ourselves. So why such an extreme consequence? But I want to back up and I want to look at what's happening in the newborn church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and pro- distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts 4, verse 34 and following says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds that was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So you, what you begin to see when you understand the context, this is the birth of the church. Pentecost just happened. This is a description of what God's people began to do for one another immediately upon being part of the church, and you see people selling land, selling possessions, and they're bringing these proceeds, and there's the expectation, the clarity, that everything that I have is now for the collective. And with that understanding, you see in here, clearly the Holy Spirit knows a position of the heart within Ananias and Sapphira that we would not. But nonetheless, their deception was made known. It was brought to the light. But they were holding back a portion of what was determined to be the Lord's. And that brought grave consequence. And then, yes, fear set into the lives of all who heard about it. But it was fear and reverence for the Lord and what is His and what we're doing here and why we're here. And I think it's also important to note here that it says, there was not a needy person among them. Whatever they had, they were selling to provide for needs. If there was a need that arose, all the proceeds, those things were distributed to each that had a need. God's provision for His people has always been and will always be His people. I mean, more on this next week. But I think of needs that exist within the body. Not everyone is aware of every need. We're not a house church. Things have grown. It's a bigger than what it might have been in those moments right there, days, weeks, or months right after the birth of the church. But nonetheless, there are needs that exist within the body. God's provision for those needs is his body. The problem is, is when those needs go unmet, they're either not known or the body is not meeting the needs. And the question becomes, why is the body not meeting the needs? Because of our proclivity to Steal. Instead of do honest work with our hands. So that we would have something to share. Our proclivity to sell something. But keep a portion. Now I'm not saying. Do not get me wrong. I'm not saying that we're sinful. In the percentage with which we tithe. Or we give to the church. The root of this is our heart. And why we would hold a portion back. For Ananias and Sapphira. The clear thing was. Was to share All of what you have to serve all the needs that existed. There was a holding back for their own personal gain or comfort. Whatever it might have been. But they were clearly wrong in it. And that provides for us that picture of stealing, of thievery that would go unnoticed. Things that we do subtly in order to deceive someone else. But verse 36, I want to go back to this of Acts chapter 4. It says, Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he also sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So you have a general example of what the people did and you have a specific example of what Barnabas did and all of that was laid at the apostles' feet to be distributed. And then you have the same language with Ananias and Sapphira. They lay it at the apostles' feet with a portion held back. So the consequence was severe because it was out of place. It was out of place for the believer. So this thievery, it comes ultimately from the enemy. After all, Peter did say, how is, why is Satan contrived this in your heart? Right? So the enemy, he does come as a murderer. He comes as a liar. He's the father of lies. But in John 10.10, 10, Jesus says that the thief comes also to steal, kill, and destroy. So the enemy is a thief. He turned Judas into a thief. If you go back to the garden, he made Eve to be a thief and that he deceived her and she took what was forbidden and then likewise she made adam a thief and that he took what was forbid, forbidden so you see this idea of thievery and taking and stealing exists from the very beginning so when we look at this passage in chapter in Ephesians 4 that says let the thief no longer steal may we settle our hearts to be included in that Not to sit back and think this is for someone else. Paul says that let each one of you do these things. All of us, one way or another, steal from one another. And here are some ways. We steal money, yes. We steal possessions, those are the clear things. What are some other things that we steal? We steal time. We steal purity. If anyone is in here and you've had sex outside the marriage bed... You have stolen the purity of the one that you laid with. That's thievery. We've stolen peace from one another. Teenagers, the level to which you communicate with your parents, you will rob them of peace. But see, we 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 relegate thievery and stealing to money and possessions. But there are things that exist on this side of heaven that far value, outvalue, and outweigh money, such as peace, such as security, contentment. When we give poor counsel to someone, hey, I'm thinking of buying this house, or I'm thinking of buying this car, now's probably not the best time to do that. This is what your budget looks like. Here's what the interest rate's going to be. That would be good counsel. Think through those things. But poor counsel would be yeah, if you want the car, buy the car. You deserve a new car. Look at that jalopy over there that you drive. But what you've done is you've robbed them of their contentment. For someone to be okay, I think of Brandon last week in the second service when he describes his vehicle situation. I would never come before my brother and rob him of the contentment with which, in the vehicle that he drives, to say, hey, you deserve something better. That is thievery. Because where where is the problem with all these things? Time and money and possessions, that's materialism, yes, but the root is not the object, the root is here. This is the thing that we affect more than anything else in ourselves, and we can affect that in others, in the way we steal from one another. Yet there is hope in this thievery. The first Adam was a thief, yes, and he was cast out of paradise. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, he turned to a thief on the cross. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. There is redemption available. And when it is received, it brings with it a call to something better. So Paul does say, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, now doing honest work with his own hands. So now what is honest work? This is the other side of this message that that is a joy to begin to work through for us. Honest work. In the Greek, it's agathos. Agathos, when it's applied to persons, what it means, it signifies the excellence of the person in their existing position. It's not a generalization that, that we shouldn't be stealing and we should be doing honest work generally. The idea is specifically, in your existing position, we should be pursuing excellence. As an adjective, adjective, it means excellent, fine, or good. That which is upright, that which is acceptable, to God. I think of last week in Matthew 25 when you have the parable of the talents as we looked at, you have the servants that had the 5 talents and the 2 talent talents and they doubled that. They went to work to produce more of what they were good given they were good stewards of that, but what was it that they heard from the master in verse 21? He says, "Well done, good Agathos, and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will set you over much." Enter into the joy of your master. You see the response of the master whenever we're doing good work. But the thing about that is in that story is that the acceptable or the acceptance of what they did was not because of how good they were. The acceptance of it and the making it acceptable to God is where the goodness comes from to begin with. The servants weren't good in themselves. The servants were good as a result of their good master. They did good work because of his goodness. It was the wicked servant who didn't understand the heart of his master. He believed him to be a thing that he wasn't, and he acted accordingly, and he buried his treasure instead of doing honest work. He robbed the master of what could have been produced, but we don't view it through that lens. He gave him back equal measure. That's not stealing. But when you hold it against what the faithful do, He didn't produce anything with it. So goodness doesn't come from the servant. It comes from the master. Psalm 118 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The rich young ruler asked Jesus in Matthew 19, he asked him, he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? He's looking through the lens of what can I do to get there? But specifically what good, what agathos should I do? And Jesus said to him, "Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Keep the commandments. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments." Jesus, I mean, Jesus, he takes the emphasis from the things that we think we should do that are good, and he puts the emphasis on the one that goodness comes from. There's only one who is good, and that is God. He doesn't even address the goodness of the commandment either. So his emphasis is not on what is good, but who is good, and then conversely, who is not good. Paul gives us a great example of this in Romans 7. Paul says in Romans 7, 18 and following, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Goodness, we're not the source of it. The master is the source of it. So we look to the master to bring about what is good. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this broken ungoodness? The good father. Our good God will do that deliverance of us. So yes, we were thieves, but now we are created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And as a result of our connection to him. So now this is the lens through which we should view our work. We perform good or honest work because He is good and He provides the impetus to do good work, not bad work. To do honest work, not steal. To put off falsehood and put on the new is a result of our connection with our Master. Now, if you didn't know it also, we still, in our not goodness, we can make honest work bad. We can have a a good job. We can have a good career. We can do well in school in different ways. We can be retired and do work with our hands, but we can still make honest work bad. How is it that we do that? One way is laziness. My... My bent sometimes can be towards laziness. I can come to work even now and I can be lazy in my work. I can get on a computer and I can go to research this and squirrel off over here. I can sit and I can, I can eat lunch and go longer and be lazy in my work because I don't want to do work with my mind. But when I'm lazy in my work, I'm stealing time away from specifically you, and that I work as a service to you, so I can rob you of time in my laziness. Procrastination is another way that we can make good work bad, is we can put off a thing that needs to be done to the last minute. Now, I've said before also, my struggle with procrastination is I would say I do my best work at the last minute. Whoever said that? For real? Nobody in the room? Thank you. Two people. Three people. There's four. Hands are going up now. But we have that idea, yeah, is we put off, and again, we rob time. And we cram it all in. I do my best work when I'm under, when I'm under the knife. How foolish is that? And I'm speaking to myself, not you guys that raise your hand, but kind of you guys that raise your hand. But I'm with you. But these are ways that we can take and we can make good work and turn it bad. Corner cutting. At the end of the day, when you're so tired, you're tired, I'm ready to go. You're waiting to punch out. That's when we corner cut. I'm not gonna do this portion. I'm not gonna wrap this up as well as what I know I should because I'm tired and I just, I'm out. For the plumbers in the room, that's the difference between a leaky faucet and, and, and one that's secure. Is at the end of the day, am I gonna put enough glue around this? There's a practical example. But that is a simple, easy way that you and I can make honest, good work bad. Taking someone else's work as our own. I mean, there's a clear example of thievery. But here's an interesting example. In the day we live in, it is a weird time that we live in right now. But I think it, it warrants a statement on it. But AI, students... A very quick, tangible way that you can make honest work bad is you can have a computer do it for you. Rather than doing honest work with your own hands. And we can say, hey, it's a tool all day long. But if it's producing for us something that we didn't have to do, it's dishonest. It's falsehood. Now, I'm not going to say that it doesn't have its place. But be mindful of how you're using such a new tool in a new age in which we live in. But these are ways in which good work can be turned bad. So why are proclivity to dishonest or bad work? The dot. We're prone to do these things because we find ourselves living for the dot, not the line. So the way we change that from dishonest work to honest work is we start living for the line. We put God in view. We put his character in view. We put his good character in view. We put eternity in view. We cast our mind there. Go back to the Hope of Heaven series that we just went through. Put your mind on those good things, and that changes our perspective from the dot to the line. And when we're focusing on the line, we will hear one day, good, well done, good and faithful servant." will have the reward of it. You were faithful over little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. These are things that we would all desire to hear, but if we're living for the dot, we may say we would desire to hear it, but our behavior is going to indicate otherwise. So let us put our mind on the line. Warren Wearsby notes this, that every Jewish rabbi was taught a trade. For, said the rabbis, if you do not teach your son a trade, you teach him to be a thief. must learn to do a thing and seek to do that thing with excellence. That is the nature of agathos. Right where we're at in our existing position. Where you are now. Regardless of how much you desire to be in that spot. You are to do good and honest work in that spot. Because you're doing it not for yourself. You're doing it to glorify the Lord. For the Christian we should pursue with excellence work whatever kind. But not just to remove the temptation to steal, but specifically, as Paul says, so that we may have something to share. And again, more on that next week. So may we learn to do honest work, whatever that may be. The men that God called in the scriptures to do good work for him, he called them in their work. Moses was tending to sheep, Gideon was was on the threshing floor, David was out watching his father's flock. Jesus himself was a carpenter. We have grand example of men that were faithful, that did good, honest work with their own hands. And we'll close with this, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7 and following. Paul writes and he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would have given you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. See the idea, the, just the, the, the caution there? Is he's writing to the church, that the matters with which he's addressing is how we interact as the church. The idea is not that, that if you don't work, you don't get to go home and eat or you don't have food on the table. But if you don't work, you're likely to not have food on the table. But his point is within the body, we do work to support the body. But if you have someone that's within the body and they're not doing work, let that person not eat. This is a consequence of our proclivity to steal, to take from those that do and provide for us without providing along with. And he continues on in verse 11. He says, for we hear, this is something that he hears that is existing and happening. He says, for we hear that some of you or some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. They look like they're doing things, but they're not doing things. They're stealing and thievery that seems to, as if it's going unnoticed for most, but some seem to see it, for Paul has heard about it. But he says, they're not busy at work, but they're busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. The church is here to support each other. We are Galatians 6.2. We're to bear one another's burdens. But verse 5 of that same passage of Scripture says, but each has his own load to carry. And brothers and sisters, if we're unwilling to carry our own load, there comes to a point where God would say to the body, quit providing and enabling someone to not carry a load. Bear burdens together, but you've got to carry your own load as part of it. Now he says this as he begins to close this letter. He says, As as for you, brothers, he's, he's, he's shifting not from those that wouldn't do, he's shifting now to those that are faithful. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Again, those are heavy words. That is a caution and a warning in God's word. and he's writing that to the faithful in the body. He says, "Don't grow weary in doing good. Part of that good is to admonish your brothers and sisters. He says, "Take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. The point of that shame and that it was bring them or bring us to a point of repentance, that we would experience the consequences of that failure to do work, and in that experience of consequence, we'd come to a place where it's like, oh my goodness. How did I find myself here? But with the Spirit's help, recognizing how we got there, and that should prompt us to repentance, to return back to the body. The purpose of it is always going to be correction. That's the nature of Romans chapter 1, is God gave them up to a debased mind so that they would experience the consequences of their sin. It would produce in them a repentance to return to the Lord in faithfulness. Otherwise, it is just enabling And you can read Revelation chapters 1 through 3 of the letters that Jesus wrote to the church as he he admonishes them for allowing sin to continue on in the body. We should call that out. And this is how Paul ends this in verse 15. He says, do not regard him as an enemy. He says, have nothing to do with him, but don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Brothers and sisters this morning, we are so warned in the word to not be idle. To not be, to not be stealing from one another. Quietly or out loud for sure, but for sure quietly. In the nature of that deception, to put off that and to do honest work with our own hands. So that we may have something to share with those that are in need. And that's an encouraging thing, but it can be a challenging thing. And this is not to say that there aren't handicaps. There aren't, he's, there aren't those that exist in the body that physically are unable to do certain work with their hands. Those things exist, but again, that's the purpose and provision of God as His people. To serve those that can't. But if you can, God's Word would say you should. And when we do that, we find ourselves walking with the Lord in unity according to His will, looking to the day that we would hear those words, Well done, good agathos, faithful servant. Right where you were at, you did excellence with what I gave you. If our heart doesn't desire such a comment from our Creator, we're going to struggle To not steal in a myriad of different ways. But that's the difference between living for the dot and the line. It's my desire to live for the line. But when I don't, I would hope that I have brothers and sisters in my life, and I know that I have brothers and sisters in my life that will see it and they will warn me as a brother. And that is, again, God's provision for His people will always be His people. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank You for Your people. (laughs) You give us Your Spirit. You give us Your Word. You give us Your people. Lord, yes, there are some times where I can... (laughs) Even from your people, I can feel an immense sense of discouragement. But at the same time, Lord, any moment of discouragement is far outweighed by the encouragement of your people. That is medicine for my heart and my mind. To know that I'm not in this thing alone, in a, in a time, in an age that is becoming immensely difficult to be. Christian, and to stand on truth. I'm thankful for brothers and sisters in Christ that would hold me accountable to that truth. But I pray for us that we have a, a better picture now of, of areas of our life where we're, we're, we're thieves. So we steal time or peace or contentment from others. Rather than letting our words be seasoned with salt that they may they give grace to anyone that hears. Teach us, Lord, to grow in faithfulness towards you as a result of your goodness in our lives that you've placed and produced within us by the work of your Son, by the counsel of your Spirit, and the encouragement of your people. Lord, I'm so thankful. In your name we pray. Amen.